Hi, and thanks for listening to Here and Now Anytime. We've got new episodes of the show every weekday afternoon, so make sure you don't miss anything by following and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for Here and Now Anytime. And if you like what you've been hearing, help us spread the word and tell somebody about Here and Now Anytime. Now here's today's show. I believe there is a pathway to bringing inflation down as we slow demand without causing a significant downturn. We ask a Federal Reserve president for some reassurance that the stewards of the country's economy really know what they're doing. It's Friday, January 20th, and this is Here and Now Anytime from NPR and WBUR Boston. I'm Chris Bentley. Today on the show, some celestial comings and goings. There's a comet on the way to our galactic neighborhood, and we've got tips for spotting it in the night sky as soon as this weekend. And celebrating the Lunar New Year. But first, we got a chance to sit down with someone who gets to make some major decisions about the economy. Susan M. Collins is president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, one of the regional branches of the country's central bank. She stopped into our studios at WBUR. And there's plenty on her mind after the U.S. hit its debt limit this week. For now, the Fed is taking what it calls extraordinary measures to avoid putting the country in default. But Collins says Congress has to act to avoid a fiscal train wreck. Let's get right to Susan M. Collins' conversation with Jane Clayson. Let me ask you about inflation, because inflation is crushing people right now, especially if you're living paycheck to paycheck. A recent report showed monthly inflation dipping slightly, but it's still at 6.5%. And core inflation that strips out energy and food is also still very high. How would you characterize where inflation stands right now and is the worst over? Inflation absolutely has been a significant challenge, and it particularly impacts lower-income households and the most vulnerable, um, the difficulty of making ends meet when necessities like food and and shelter, uh, those prices are rising so rapidly. And so while I have seen some promising signs that the the work the Federal Reserve is doing to restore price stability is having some positive impact. We do, I believe, have further work to do to bring inflation down. You know, I hear you talk and I I think about the eye-popping increases in not just housing and rent, but groceries. Um, You know, people are are really struggling. And yet many companies are seeing record profits. It seems like consumers are suffering, but not corporations. Does the Fed get that? Does the Fed see that as a problem? And can anything be done to level the playing field for consumers? The Fed, of course, is monitoring holistically all of the different kinds of information from what's happening with households, with firms. You know, in terms of the the different components of price inflation, there are lots of factors that have led prices to be rising so rapidly. Some of them are factors on um, the supply side that the Federal Reserve really doesn't have much influence over at all. And that includes things like uh, longstanding, uh, things like weather conditions. It also, particularly in the food uh you know, the uh, the bird flu has taken a real toll on, for example, egg prices and climate change also has impact. So there are a lot of longstanding factors and reasons that food prices are traditionally very volatile. And that is certainly impacting households and one of the things that I'm very concerned about. I get that. But can I push you, President Collins, because corporate profits are up dramatically, record profits. I would see that as one of the reasons that there's room for 
price increases to moderate and is part of my own outlook and uh, expectation that prices will com- continue to come down over 2023 and then uh, downward to our 2% target in, in a reasonable amount of time. Let me ask you about that 2% target. The Fed has been trying to bring down inflation by increasing interest rates. There were four hikes of three quarters of a point last year. The Fed will look at another increase next month. And you told The New York Times that you're leaning toward a smaller increase, a quarter of a point increase. Some of your colleagues are as well. Why a smaller rate hike when inflation is still so high? Yeah, so of course we started back in March with interest rates near zero, and it was very clear that we had work to do to realign demand, which was very much uh, above available supply, both in markets for goods and services and labor markets. And so it really made sense to move aggressively, expeditiously with those 75 basis point hikes to bring interest rates up to a range where monetary policy was having a more restrictive effect on the economy to help us narrow that gap and bring inflation down. Now that we're much closer, certainly we're in restrictive territory, we're seeing the effect of that, I really do believe that it makes sense to take slower increments that gives us the time to really balance the risks of not doing enough and perhaps going a bit too far. I see. Your colleague and St. Louis Fed President James Bullard has called for a higher rate hike to avoid a possible resurgence in inflation. What would you say to people concerned that the Fed is actually letting up too soon? I think considering that balance is really important, and I think that speaks to the substantive conversations we have around the monetary policy table, that there are a range of views that are considered. What I'm seeing in the data show considerable resilience still in our economy, and so I'm what I call realistically optimistic that we can bring inflation down, restore price stability without requiring a significant downturn. And therefore, I think that recognizing the balance of those risks through smaller increments is appropriate at this time. So you talk about that balance, and you also see resilience in the economy. The Fed is trying to bring down inflation without causing a recession. That's on many people's minds. Given what you know right now, is that possible? I do see a pathway to bringing inflation down without that significant downturn. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Some of the resilience is in terms of the firm balance sheets you mentioned earlier, and also the uh, continued ability of households, especially our higher income households, to consume. There's also the fact that many firms are lean. There are a number of firms that um, struggle to hire and that are still planning to increase their payrolls. And all of that provides an environment with very high vacancy rates in which I believe there is a pathway to bringing inflation down as we slow demand without causing a significant downturn. When you see layoffs of thousands of people at Google and Microsoft, what's happening? And are you expecting more layoffs or an increase in in the unemployment rate? In order to bring inflation down, one of the key things we need to do is to cool labor markets. At the moment, overall, there is a a gap, excess demand relative to the available worker supply. And that will imply layoffs in some places, but overall, unemployment rate is still extremely low. Um, There are job vacancies and pretty high quit rates. And so that shows some resilience for our economy. 
And it also illustrates that in order to bring wage inflation down and address high services prices, we do need to do more in that, in that context. Back in 2021, Fed Chair Jerome Powell and other officials called inflation transitory. Mr. Powell has since walked that back. Um, This happened, of course, before you were at the Fed. But moving forward, are you at all concerned that the Fed has a trust problem for miscalculating on inflation for so long? I think there's always more to learn. And I think uh, recognizing the very unusual context that we've been living in is important. And I think also that the Federal Reserve, like others, didn't foresee just the persistence. And that explains why we moved so aggressively. As I look at measures of expectations, I'm pleased to see that there does seem to be considerable credibility that we will bring inflation down. We're seeing signs that that's beginning to happen. And we need to stay the course and really follow through on the commitments that we've made. You began as Federal Reserve Chief in Boston over the summer. Uh, Before that, you were at the University of Michigan, the International Monetary Fund, a member of the Council of Economic Advisors during the first Bush administration. You're also the first black woman to lead a, a regional reserve bank. What are your top priorities moving forward right now? And what is the unique perspective you bring to this job? I'm really committed to the public mission of the Federal Reserve, and in particular, the Boston Fed, with its focus on the New England community and the New England economy. And that public mission involves, um, of course, monetary policy and economic research that people are familiar with. It also involves a commitment and engagement with uh, community development, fostering ways to really promote uh, progress in lower middle-income communities. We have an initiative at the Boston Fed called the Working Places Challenge, which uh, helps to create collaborative leadership initiatives in struggling small cities and rural areas to really uh, address some of the challenges like workforce development, like reducing poverty. And uh, those are some of the things that I'm particularly committed to. That's Susan M. Collins, President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. President Collins, a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for being in the studio. Thank you for having me. Coming up, what do you see when you look at the night sky? Well, in a lot of places, not much, thanks to light pollution. According to a new study, that's getting worse, fast. But despite that, for the next week or so, you might be lucky enough to catch a glimpse of something else. A green comet. Find out how to see it and hear more about that light pollution study after the break. A beautiful green comet is gracing the night sky above Earth right now. It's Comet ZTF, and it's making its first appearance in our solar system in 50,000 years. Yeah, and it's bright enough that in the right conditions, you might be able to even see it with the naked eye. Let's talk about that and a few other stories with Kelly Beatty, Senior Editor of Sky and Telescope. Hi, Kelly. Hey, good afternoon. Good to have you. So explain to us first what a comet is exactly. It is a leftover from the formation of our solar system, and there are trillions of them lying far away from where we think of the planets, right on the fringe of our solar system, just barely bound to the sun's gravitational grasp. 
And that's where this one came from. It's, it's been lurking out there for four and a half billion years. These objects are icy predominantly, maybe a little dust in them. And they um, are very cold. They've stayed cold since the formation of the solar system, maybe a couple of miles across. So tell us why this one, Comet ZTF, gives off a, a green glow. Right. So these ices are not just water ice like we're used to. It's all kinds of exotic things, frozen carbon dioxide, frozen nitrogen. And one of the compounds in this solid body is something called diatomic carbon, two carbon atoms stuck together. When the comet gets close to the sun, as it is now, it warms up, it gives off these vapors, which includes this diatomic carbon, which absorbs sunlight and then fluoresces in this beautiful aqua green color. And you say it's been around for, what, four billion years. Is this particular one a new discovery? Did we just see it for the first time? It is. It was discovered in early March uh, by, a, by a facility out in California called the Zwicky Transient Facility, which watches for things that blink or move, and that's where the ZTF comes from. And this comet has been inbound from this, from this location that's a quarter of a trillion miles away. Mm. For wow. thousands of years, and it's it's just now coming close to the sun, and then that's when we were able to see it and pick it up. And since then, it's beginning closer to the sun. It passed closest to the sun a few days ago on the 12th, but more importantly, it'll be closest to the Earth on the 27th of this month. So the big question, Kelly, where is it visible and, and when can we see it? It is wonderfully placed in the northern part of the sky. It's gradually getting higher up night by night. Need to go, you'll need to go to the Here and Now website or to our website, skyandtelescope.org, for a map. Now, it might barely be visible to the unaided eye if you're in a super dark location, but really better would be binoculars or even a small telescope. And the best time, if I were to pick a couple of nights, would be the 26th and 27th because it'll be passing right by the handle of the Little Dipper, very near the North Star Polaris. So, so just quickly, some tips. Like, is it as simple as taking some binoculars and just going out into the sky and looking up? Will we all be able to see it across the continental United States? It is that simple. And I have to say, though, that the more light pollution you have, the worse your chances of seeing the comet. Because this is one of those mm. fuzzy, soft objects that gets obliterated by light pollution, which is a real bane for astronomers and everyone in trying to appreciate the night mm. sky. Well, since you mentioned it, let me dive in a little bit more to that because you've pointed us to a new report in Science Magazine that the night sky is actually becoming brighter, even with efforts to reduce light pollution. What does that report say? It says that, uh, you know, we've, we've probably all seen pictures of the Earth taken at night from satellites. But those satellites have a blind spot. They don't see any of the blue light that is escaping the Earth. And also, those are only seeing lights that's going straight up. What this new report talks about is thousands and thousands of uh, measurements made with the unaided eye, made by people like us on the ground uh, over the last 20 years. And those have been compiled. It's a program called Globe at Night globeatnight.org. Anyone can do this. Age 8 to 80, no equipment's necessary. You make an estimate of how dark your sky is and therefore how much light pollution you have. And a team of scientists led by one in, in Germany has taken this data and plotted over time. And guess what? 
light pollution is increasing far faster than we realize, far faster than the, the satellites would indicate, up to 11% per year here in North America. Mm. Are there health implica- implications for humans and animals from increasing light pollution? I mean, uh, what's the biggest takeaway from the report? Oh, absolutely. You know, people think of light pollution as being something that just affects astronomers, but that's not true. Uh, light at night in, in its many forms, and we, we need it for safety and security, but too much of a good thing can interrupt our circadian rhythms as humans. It certainly interrupts the circadian rhythms of all of the nocturnal creatures that occupy the night. Uh, you know, they mate, they migrate, they do all kinds of things at night. Pollinators, for example. And also they have uh, implications for the the uh, just our general awareness too much light makes it hard to see at night, if you can believe it. There's, there are limits, and this yeah. article really goes into that in a lot of detail. Well, hopefully there won't be too much so we can see the green comet. Kelly Beattie is Senior Editor of Sky and Telescope. Thank you, Kelly. A pleasure. Coming up, Lunar New Year celebrations begin this weekend. After the break, Jane Clayson gets a crash course in some traditional dishes that help ring in the new year. Stick around. This Sunday is the start of the Lunar New Year. The day is celebrated by billions of people across the world and many in the United States as well. There will be parties, fireworks, parades, and all manner of performance to ring in the new year, which will be the year of the rabbit. A central part of this celebration is food, and here in studio to guide us through some of the many foods of the Lunar New Year celebration is Megan Zhang. She is Senior Food Culture Editor at Savour Magazine, and she brought some food for us to taste and to talk about. Megan, welcome to Here and Now, and this looks and smells amazing. Thank you for having me, Jane. I hope you're hungry. (laughs) I am, and we will eat today. But before we dive in, tell us about the significance of the Lunar New Year for the many people who celebrate it around the world. Lunar New Year marks the start of the new year in the lunisolar calendar, and it's been followed for millennia in many cultures. And because it involves the positions of both the moon and the sun, it falls on a different day every year. So this year it's on the earlier side, this Sunday, January 22nd. And across cultures, it's a day of new beginnings. It's about getting a fresh start, starting the year on a good note with a clean slate. Mm. And what kind of celebrations and commemorations do you see generally around that day? A lot of observances are about new beginnings. It's important to buy and wear new clothing. People will also clean out their homes and basically start the year on a really fresh note. It's also expected to honor our ancestors, to worship our ancestors. Oftentimes that involves food offerings and remembrances. So is this a time for families to gather? Absolutely. And I think what every culture has in common when it comes to Lunar New Year is the highlight is the food and gathering with friends and Mm. family around a table of delicious dishes and just having a banquet. Mm. So food is such an important part of the Lunar New Year celebration, right? Yes, absolutely. And it's really important to eat auspicious dishes during Lunar New Year. Some of the symbolism might stem from the shape of the ingredient or the pronunciation of the ingredient, but 
oftentimes dishes have some sort of symbolic meaning behind them. Okay. I can't wait anymore. Let's dig in here. You've brought some beautiful <laughs> dishes. The first one is Taiwanese-style pan-fried noodles with pork. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that as I dig in here. Well, noodles represent longevity in a number of Asian cultures, which is why we eat them during the Lunar New Year. It's also customary to eat noodles on your birthday for the same reason. It's all about inviting that longevity because Mm. the noodles are long-shaped. And a little cabbage in there too, I taste. Yes, yeah. Really, the cabbage and the pork are just a really nice combination that really brings out that savory flavor. Very good. Very tasty. Not too spicy? Yes. The primary seasoning in here is soy sauce. So you're getting a lot of that umami. The pork and the cabbage also bring a lot of savoriness too. So it's it's just a really tasty dish to enjoy year round, but certainly during Lunar New Year. Mm. Very good. All right. Next, you brought a fish dish. Tell mm. us about this fish dish, which is displayed in front of you, the entire fish Yes. So the word for fish in Chinese is pronounced yu, which is a homophone for a different character that is also pronounced yu and means surplus or abundance. Mm. And traditionally, the fish is served whole with the head and tail intact, which is said to be the most auspicious presentation. And growing up, I remember my parents telling me that when we ate the whole fish on the eve of Lunar New Year, we would have to save a little bit to enjoy (laughs) after midnight um, or the next day because Mm. that would symbolize surplus and Ah. bringing in surplus and abundance into the new year. I see. Garnished with some olives and scallions. And is that what I see there? Yes. And some peppers, a bit of garlic. This fish was steamed, so it's really light, aromatic. You can certainly braise whole fish as well, maybe even bake it. Are there specific times when certain foods are served and eaten? And is there one meal that takes precedent over the others on Lunar New Year? I would say dinner is the most significant meal. Everybody comes together Oftentimes, families will spend the whole day, even multiple days, prepping ingredients and dishes for the big banquet. And the meal can go on for hours, you know, oftentimes lasting into uh, past midnight. My goodness. Well, Lunar New Year is celebrated across um, many East Asian cultures. Those first two dishes that we just tasted, the noodles and the fish, are Chinese. But this next dish is Korean, right? It's a rice cake soup. Tell us about this one. Yes, I love Korean food. And um, I've learned from friends and chefs over the years that color is very significant in Korean culture. And the color white is said to symbolize new beginnings and clean starts. Mm. So this dish is called tokguk. It's a rice cake soup. And you can see the rice cakes are a snow white color. They're made from glutinous rice flour. So they're really chewy. They're really fun to eat. And they're made in a long log shape and then sliced into flat spheres. So they kind of resemble coins, which is also uh, a Symbolizing symbol. wealth and prosperity, I guess, in the new year. Huh? Exactly. Yes. The circular shape is believed to represent wealth and affluence that hopefully the new year will bring. I see some egg in here and a nice broth. Yes. It's always served in a very clean tasting broth. Traditionally, it's beef broth, but I've also seen it prepared with chicken broth. And for many Korean people, this is going to be the first meal they have in the new year. So it's nice to start the year off on a very clean, fresh, light note. It is refreshing.
Tell us about food in other cultures, in Vietnam or the Philippines. A lot of Lunar New Year dishes, I've noticed, are actually quite shared across cultures. So one example is spring rolls. In the Philippines, lumpia is fried spring rolls that are very popular in Filipino culture. And they're definitely a party food. They're a celebratory dish. Any Filipino gathering you go to, oftentimes there will be lumpia on the table. Mm. There are finger foods, which is always nice for parties, and you can make them ahead in big batches. And as with a lot of Filipino cuisine, it developed in part from influence from Chinese culture, which traditionally also eats spring rolls during Lunar New Year. And in Vietnam, people will also make their own versions of spring rolls for the new year. So it's really interesting Mm. that there are these like cross-cultural traditions that have spread over time and are now observed across different countries. Well, I'm not quite finished with the main courses here, but let's move on to the (laughs) dessert. Um, These are black sesame rice balls. Tell Mm -hmm. us about these. Do they come at the end of of a long feast at about midnight? So the rice balls are actually traditionally eaten on the 15th day, which is the last day of Lunar New Year celebrations. That's the day when the moon is going to be very full. And the sticky rice balls, which I grew up calling tangyuan, they're said to resemble the full moon. And because they're round, they also represent togetherness, union with family, all good things. Mm. The sesame inside, little pop. Yeah, they're really rich, right? And also really sweet. So if you have a sweet tooth, this is your dish. Mm. (laughs) What's your favorite of all these dishes or of any Lunar New Year dish? Oh, that's hard. Um, I have to say I do have a sweet tooth. So the tangyuan, the sticky rice balls, I always look forward to that. My favorite is the black sesame paste, which is what you had. Those rice balls are really good. (laughs) They're really good. They're sweet, but not too sweet, you know, and the inside just gives you that, whew, that's a surprise. It's lots of fun. The sesame brings a nice earthiness. Are there traditions or events or celebrations in the Lunar New Year that you particularly like, Megan? I've heard about the lion dances. Tell us Mm -hmm. about that. Yes, I grew up watching lion dances every Lunar New Year. We'd go up to San Francisco and um, different organizations would throw their own celebrations and frequently that included lion dances. Lions in Chinese culture are believed to symbolize strength and courage. And so putting on a lion dance, watching a lion dance, it's said to invite good fortune for the new year. And Mm. I always look forward to that. Well, I was in the market yesterday, and there was a woman buying all sorts of items for her Lunar New Year celebration, and she was talking to us as she was checking out, and and she was describing this feast that they were going to have as a family uh, this weekend. If you can't cook or take out, are these items you can buy at the store to celebrate? Absolutely, yes. A lot of Asian grocers and supermarkets will definitely have the tangyuan, the sticky rice balls, in the freezer section. So you can buy a few packages and boil them up at home and enjoy that for dessert. There are also lots of Chinese, Korean, Vietnamese restaurants that will be cooking up symbolic dishes. There's plenty to choose from. And of course, when it's the holidays, it's always fun to try cooking some recipes at home yourself. So If the spirit moves you, that's also a way to go. (laughs) All right. Share with us the special greeting or the phrase that we say to one another in the new year. 
So when it's Lunar New Year, you greet people with 新年快乐, which means Happy New Year. You can also say 恭喜发财, which is basically a phrase to wish people affluence and prosperity, wealth in the coming year. Well, 恭喜发财. 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 Yes. Close. (laughs) (laughs) Happy New Year. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Jane. to everyone celebrating. This show comes from the team behind Here and Now from NPR and WBUR Boston. Today's stories were produced by Jill Ryan, Julia Corcoran, and Thomas Danielian. Our editors are Gabe Bullard, Todd Munt, Peter O'Dowd, and Kat Welch. Technical direction from Max Liebman and Mike Moschetto. Theme music by Max, Mike, and me. Our digital producers are Grace Griffin and Allison Hagen. And the executive producer of Here and Now is Carlene Watson. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great weekend. Good luck catching that comet or celebrating the Lunar New Year. And we'll be back Monday. Monday.